Welcome to Economics and Beyond. I'm Rob Johnson, president of the Institute for New Economic Thinking. Say you can kill my body. But you know you can't mess with my mind. So don't you can't kill my mind. You know we'll go away. We're gonna go away. Come back, come back, come back, come back. My second time. I'm here today with Montek Singh Alawalia. Long time, very, very important minister in the Indian government and was also part of a growth commission which was led by Mike Spence, who's also the co-chairman of the Commission on Global Economic Transformation at INET. Mike is Nobel laureate from 2001, very involved all over the world in issues related to technology, economic development, and uh, just a, how I say, lovely to have you both here today. Montek, you've got a new book, or I guess it's not brand new, but it's, it, it's new to the world. And it's backstage, the story behind the high growth years in India. Now, I loved the opening of the book where you said, most people write a book and they say it's like a, a, a book form of a selfie. And you mocked that. And I, I got a very strong sense, I would say, of your purpose from knowing you and how you've been dedicated to raising the standard of life for many, many people. But even in your book, you were very conscious of the difference, which you might call between uh, narcissism, looking into narcissus pool, and imparting your experience to us to give us lessons into the future. So I, I very much enjoy the book, and I very much uh, thank you for sharing that perspective. I think for my young scholars, that's a beautiful way to see the purpose of reflecting on experience in creating a book. But let me turn to you, Montek. Uh, describe the process. What inspired you to write the book and what do you th see as the key findings or, or illuminations that you shared? Thanks, Rob. Thank you very much for giving me a platform, if you like, to advertise my book. So the least I can do is kind of play here. That's the <laughs> <laughs> Looks nice. Um, and, you know, I think, as you said, I, I don't regard it as a memoir. Because a memoir is all about the individual. View uh, it, I, I said somewhere, it's more like a travelogue. Uh, it's describing a process that involves very large numbers of people. I wasn't the central actor by any means. But I must say that I did have a very privileged position. That's why the book is called Backstage. I mean, I was there for a surprisingly long part of the period. Why did I write the book? You know, everybody looks at it from their own perspective. And looking back, one of the things I'm really surprised at is that when I wrote the book, I think there was a much greater consensus uh, at the time when the changes were being made, much greater global consensus on where to go. I mean, you know, uh, the Indian reforms sort of began in 1991. And I think from the 1980s on, this consensus was growing. 
And the consensus include many, included many things. I mean, on the political side, it included the notion that uh, need to be a democracy to actually get the best benefits of uh, a process of global integration. You need, you need markets and you need to recognize that the private sector has a very prominent role to play. You need to open up to the global economy. That means integration and goods trade, and also integration in technology. We were a bit cautious about the implications for integration. You know, the old Washington consensus that the kind of tech formula didn't necessarily hold. Uh, we did open up to capital, but we did it in a more gradual kind of way. And I think that, in a way, consistent with the Deng Xiaoping approach in China of kind of crossing the river while feeling the stokes. And generally, I think the, the notion was that the global economy, of course, is not equal. The U.S. always had a dominant position. And I think the U.S.'s own view of U.S. exceptionalism was always known. But it was generally felt that the U.S. is a sort of benign hegemon. And most people kind of went along with a global economy that was in effect being led by the U.S. And with the collapse of the Soviet Union in 1991, uh, this appeared to be a complete consensus. I mean, that's when Francis Fukuyama used his uh, end of history and that kind of thing. Now, I wanted, I mean, although there was a consensus, it wasn't easy in India to get it all done. Because within a system, it takes a lot of time to persuade everybody that change is good. And one of the characteristics in India, which I think was an unavoidable consequence of being a democracy, is that it was gradual. You had to persuade people to come on board. You didn't just go and unroll, unveil a sort of a, a, a blueprint and said, look, I've consulted all the experts is the way to go, and we're going to do it. You sort of consulted, you tried to bring people on board. That meant that change also took longer. It had the enormous advantage that it broadened the political consensus. And you know, this struck me a lot in India, because when we introduced reforms in 1991, it was very contentious. And admittedly, one of the reasons we were able to do it is because we had a huge crisis. It is not just the crisis. The crisis was caused by another government. I mean, you can be running a government and have a crisis. That doesn't encourage you to do things differently. You are continuously having to defend whatever the hell you did. We had a new government. It was easy for them to say, look, the previous guys have mucked it up. They're not seeing what's happening around the world. We need to make this change. The change happen. So what I'm struck by is that, you know, in the last several years, Global comfortable consensus appears to have disappeared. And I mean, I don't know how it's going to come back, but I think people around the world need to know that it's difficult to make changes. It's good to be making changes which are done in a, you know, like consensual democratic context. It takes time to get people on board. But one of the critical things is that underlying has to be a very substantial consensus so that when governments change, you actually, I mean, you insult each other, which is important in a democracy, and so on, but you then get on with doing the job. I think right now we're in a world where a lot of what was taken for granted 
as a polis dystopia. Democracy has kind of morphed into electoral autarky and populism is taken over. Uh, that confidence that the democratic process generated trust isn't there anymore. There are lots of doubts the functioning of the global economy, partly due to the fact that the U.S. position is now challenged. And, you know, the U.S. position was slowly eroding over time anyway. But if a large number of others had come to the fore, I think it would have been easy to manage. Instead, what we've got is one dominant challenger. And the dominant challenger has actually changed its own sort of uh, projection of the world because he's projecting it itself as offering an alternative. I mean, he's not saying, look, we're just joining. I mean, the attitude that China had when it joined the WTO is very different from the attitude it has now. That creates uh, a very different situation. The other thing, quite frankly, is that apart from the security sides of it, you've got tremendous changes in technology which feed into security and create uncertainty. And on, on, the, on the role of markets, you've got technologies, you've got winner-take-all effects, serious doubts about whether just letting markets function uh, will actually lead to a healthy competitive situation. So it's a fraying of a consensus. I just hope that somehow uh, this is not allowed to get too much uh, out of play, when a lot of bad ideas can easily take over. It's not easy uh, to find out what's a good idea, but it's usually quite easy to find out what's bad. And I think we discussed this uh, in the growth mission, which Mike headed. And you know, we also we put in, apart from the usual good ideas, we said, look, here's a set of bad ideas. Now, all of that is kind of disappearing. You know, protection is no longer a bad idea, running a huge deficit. It's no longer a bad idea. But really, if you weren't an economist and you were mildly critical economist, you would be very easily tempted to the point of view that when Keynes said that people are just driven by uh, discredited economists, uh, practically all economists today are discredited. Certainly, they differ with each other enormously. So it's very easy for somebody who's not an economist to why should I listen to all this stuff? I don't agree with each other anyway. So it's a tough world for somebody growing up right now. Much tougher than it was for people who were making up their minds in the 1990s. Hmm. Yeah. Mike, what are your thoughts? No, I, I think Montek has put it very well. I mean, there's a, there was a, uh, maybe... I guess I would say there was a consensus. It, it, the, the, the Washington version of it was highly criticized. I just wrote something about that. I think most of the criticism was unfair. As the Washington consensus as written by John Williamson was actually a very sensible document if you interpreted, if you, if you interpreted it correctly. And that is, these are general guidelines, things you really need to think about if you're going to have a successful development strategy. Um, but it was never meant to be a strategy, and certainly the slimmed-down version, which was tried several times in Latin America, you know, without paying attention to several of the things Montek said, including you, it takes time and you have to do things gradually and you have to experiment and figure out, you know, what's going to work and what doesn't, all of that was ignored and with bad results. 
Um, and so there was a kind of discrediting of that. But even when we met together in the early 2000s, you know, as members of this commission, to kind of update a sense of what people like Montech and, and others who had been leading important reform agendas had learned, we really didn't have, you know, a sense that the world had sort of turned upside down. You know, the openness, leveraging the global economy in the right ways, uh, getting the investment levels up, avoiding market distorting activity, many, all the things Montech mentioned, were pretty much generally agreed on. And there wasn't, you know, a complete consensus on the governance model because, you know, the world's largest, most complicated democracy by then was growing quite nicely. And, and, uh, and the, the other chaps, you know, across the border to the north were doing reasonably well economically as well. So it was a little hard to argue that there was a correct governance model, you know, that was the only one that worked. So we kind of, you know, I think you just have to face the fact that there's more than one ways to get the job done, um, depending on history, culture, and and so on. Values, how much do you care about stability, you know, how fast do you want to move and so on. But I think the world has changed. And and I and, and so let me just highlight the, the key things that I think have have done it. And I'm I'm really you know backtracking around at, at what Montek said. One of them is that the United States was never going to be dominant, right? We knew even back then that absent a, a huge accident that stopped the growth of the major players in the in the developing world, the two future economic giants were going to be China and India. And there was going to have to be some different way to manage the global economy. And the, and the uh, G20 was formed for that purpose and to, uh, to, uh, to uh, you know, create priorities. It sort of did a pretty good job in the great financial crisis, but has struggled since then. I think the great, <clears throat> that's not a particular criticism on my part. It just, it's tough, you know, when you have that much heterogeneity to come together. So that's one thing, you know, and we just, ha we don't have. Um, second, I think the WTO was democratized, you know, replacing the GATT, and that hasn't worked very well either. Uh, you know, I don't know what to say about that. I'm not a great fan of authoritarian versions of, you know, making up global rules, but we haven't been very good. It's not been an effect. It's been an effective adjudicator up until recently of trade disputes, but it has not been an effective forum for adapting the rules to really dramatically changing circumstances. And I guess the third thing I would say is technology is now all around us. It's all over us. We don't really have a complete map of where we're going. It has national security implications. It has implications the way society is put together and politics works and so on. And we just have only started to, to kind of wrestle with those issues and, and we're not gonna we're not gonna come out in the same place. Europe and America won't come out in the same place. India will come out in a different place. China certainly has already come out in a different place in managing various dimensions of the regulation of technology, whether it's content, whether it's uh, uh, data security and privacy, whether it's market power uh, of the type that Montech mentioned. So we're on a, on, on a journey, but these things, uh, these things are important. I, I think for us, you know, if we were doing the Growth Commission again, technology would have been a much bigger prominent thing because it is in the process of removing 
the power of the Asian development model uh, because of the, of robotics. I mean, it, it's kind of that simple. And we don't really have a very well-developed alternative uh, growth model that source of comparative advantage for driving high-speed growth. Sorry to be long-winded. Well, no, it was good. Montek, uh, I want to ask you how you think the unmaskings associated with the pandemic have affected the challenge, both present and future. But I know Mike said a lot of interesting things. You may want to start there. Well, actually, I agree with, uh, I mean, I've always agreed with most of what Mike says, actually. Uh, so I won't go over that again. I think there's commonality there. You know, the pandemic gives a good, uh, I, I mean, a couple of points I want to make. I don't know, I don't understand enough about the pandemic. I mean, after all, uh, the world's epidemiologists uh, need to be put on the, on a platform to tell us uh, what's the thing to do. You know, the most important thing about the pandemic is really the role of technology, which might tell us. I mean, the truth is that in the past, it took between five to ten years to develop a vaccine. This time around, we got more than one vaccine in less than a year. I mean, in one sense, that can be said to be a fantastic achievement. But that's not an achievement that was the result of any conscious international collaboration. I mean, individual countries did what they could, whatever capacities they had. I mean, the U.S. and Europe supported their own vaccine manufacturers. We encouraged our vaccine manufacturers to do tie-up. I mean, the biggest vaccine producer in the world is the Serum Institute of India. They tied up with uh, Oxford AstraZeneca, which is now rolling out in India also. They've also tied up with some of the others. But so far, I mean, the only international response to the pandemic is the generalized slogan that nobody's safe until everybody's safe. Sounds very good. But, you know, at the back of it, you would expect a hell of a lot of money to be put onto that so that the COVAX uh, initiative could actually go and buy up a whole lot of vaccines. And the money's just not been mobilized. So I would say that so far, uh, we haven't actually done all that well globally, but you know, you never know. I mean, things might improve. It's not being done on a global platform either. I mean, for example, in the recent meeting of the Quad, the U.S., and India, and Australia, uh, there was there was some discussion, cooperation on vaccine production, but I call that more or less an extended bilateral. It's not a global. It's not a global effort. Not a multilateral. I think that uh, probably at the moment uh, you see a lot of uh, not just vaccine nationalism, but kind of you know intercompany sort of uh, running each other down. I mean, you never know whether news about the effectiveness of one particular vaccine is being spread by competing pharmaceutical companies. There's a lot of concern about that. So I think all the points that Mike mentioned about what technology has done, taken the, if you like, the space for generating a consensus, is no longer in the control of government. It's being done really across the world through social media. Uh, and how we're going to respond to that is not actually very clear. Each individual country, of course, has to sort of do whatever it can. 
uh, expand the spread of vaccination. So far, I mean, in India, we made a sort of a start. I mean, the number is vaccinated quite large, uh, something like 10 million or so. Uh, but, you know, as a percent of the total population, it's still very small. Mike, uh, you had mentioned a few moments ago the uh, East Asian model. How would I say? Past will not be prologue in the next phase for the developing countries. Global supply chains, automation, machine learning, robotics, uh, changes in the terms of trade, so the balance of payments are not so uh, favorable as manufacturing is the driving engine of development. But what? how does technology bring us potential? Are there new things? And you and I have been working with the Commission on Global Economic Transformation about what possibilities are there in Africa where there isn't the East Asian model, where an equatorial region is subsistence farming is damaged heavily by climate change, and where there is a huge demographic bulge on the horizon. How, how do you... How can technology come to the rescue? Well, I think there's some opportunities, but but you know, let me say, I mean, I think development economists, you know, who have you know an applied, you know, practical bent, should really pay attention to India, because India's development path has has been distinctly different, in a very interesting ways. Early investment in technology, you know, uh, leading to really impressive sectoral growth in a number of areas, uh, less reliance on the, you know, the global economy's demand. Uh, now, you know, and, and, and a, a, st a stunning educational system. I mean, you know, the number of uh, Indian citizens or people who were born and raised and educated in India running major institutions, including major business institutions around the world is just stunning. Um, and so I think, you know, we, we don't want to, we do want to pay attention to the model, you know, because it's going it, to, we have to find one, people who are leading these changes have to find one that works. But we shouldn't lose sight of the fact that there isn't just one model out there and that these critical investments, you know, that have been made, and India made a lot of these investments when it wasn't a wildly wealthy country, right, in, you know, in people and educational systems and technology that has both driven growth and, 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 and elevated the economy. So, so I think that's probably the most important thing I want to say. I guess the second thing I, I, I'll, I, I'll mention is that the studies that the Chinese have done in, out of Hangzhou um, using the e-commerce and fintech data suggest that if you have a reasonably decent kind of infrastructure, and, and I don't mean to pass over that, that's a question mark you know, for relatively poor countries. It's not a question mark for, you know, middle-income countries. Um, you know, in Latin America, certainly not a question. India has the capacity to build the infrastructure it needs. China certainly does, and I think many of the Asian countries do. But there are, there are real questions about that. But if you have that in place, then it, then it turns out that the growth patterns associated with these technologies are not only impressive, but they're inclusive, right? And, and the reason is that properly used, the technology 
you know, brings people into markets, into employment, into uh, expanding markets. I mean, Alibaba, you know, I, I, we remind ourselves frequently was created to help small, medium-sized businesses scale up by giving them access to bigger markets, which is a, just a natural for digital, you know, digitally enabled markets. Uh, I mean, the average distance, they say, <coughs> for non-perishable goods between the final consumer and the, uh, the producer in the offline world the seller in the offline world is like five to ten kilometers and in the online world it's a thousand that's just a big change in this in the size of the market accessible so i think you know we want to pursue those ideas and then ask ourselves the question do they provide at least some um significant potential to um to augment growth in 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 a wide range of countries but including the ones you know that are still in the low income category Hmm. Montek, uh, do you think this uh, Indian model and the in early investment in technology uh, has created on whole very positive developments, but are there some contradictions that have been, uh, what you might call, raised to the surface that other places have to contend with? What, what have you learned from knowledge-intensive development? Let me, uh, let me first uh, endorse uh, what Mike said about the benefits of uh, the whole digitalization process, which obviously depends on being able to build out effective uh, infrastructure, which would support a data-intensive kind of digitalization. I mean, India is sort of at the bottom of the middle-income uh, group of countries, but it can probably and does uh, and is engaged in uh, making these investments. And they are having a huge effect. I mean, in the sense that, you know, we have a large number of startups, some of them doing very well. These are guys you never heard of. So, you know, the social impact of new names who are not uh, people with inherited wealth making it big is the biggest endorsement of both private sector activity and market-based. A lot of negatives on that front, and we hear that all the time in India. But, you know, the fact that you've got, I don't know, 300 unicorns up in India, this is not widely publicized. I think you mentioned uh, what is it about India that's interesting. You know, I think the most interesting thing about India is there's a lot of interesting things happening that are not captured in the aggregate data. I mean, they are they're the result of micro stories. And we don't really even have systems of data collection that can put this up. Uh, fortunately, uh, social media and a hell of a lot of very active keep bombarding my iPhone with all these well-researched stories. And I must say that they're quite impressive from everything. I mean, uh, whether it's the world of entertainment, uh, uh, online delivery of education, slew of things, uh, there's a big change that's taking place, new opportunities being created, etc. So this, this growth of technology is quite visibly leading to economic productivity, economic benefit, and employment in a very decentralized way. And I think this is primarily, this is entirely private sector driven. The re even even the infrastructure actually in India uh, 
is is not not being done as fast as it should be at the government. I mean, the real role of the government in this should be to build out the fiber of to the whole area. And they're doing it, but they're not doing it as fast as we should. But certainly as far as the private sector is concerned, they're very keen to expand these networks because they see it as a way of making money. Uh, so in that sense, the old private sector uh, basic initiative, the incentive system, I think uh, how this would translate into Africa, there's no reason that it <laughs> My guess is that the positive microscopies need to be spread. And people will find ways of applying them. You leave it to some centralized organization, I mean, it probably won't happen. There's one thing that I want to mention in terms of what we learned. I think I really learned it from the Growth Commission because it, it first surfaced there. You know, uh, we underestimate the role of institutions in getting a whole lot of things done. I mean, for example, the undergraduate view of technology this sort of manner from heaven. So it just happens exogenously and becomes available to everybody. And in the worst case, if you make a Cobb Douglas type of assumption, it doesn't even alter the labor capital share. Now that, that's the kind of Pollyanna-ish view. The truth is that certain types of institutional structure somehow do encourage the growth of technology. They shouldn't all be they shouldn't all be centralized and government controlled. You know, after all, I mean, uh, the internet would never have happened, with packaging would never have happened if the APA hadn't got into devising systems that would be uh, pretty uh, immune to a network being crashed by a single node being knocked up. So there's a, there's a, there's a very close relationship between the government support for research and the private sector picking it up. Relying only on the government would be a disaster uh, because you can have a lot of basic research but it doesn't pick it up, uh, then you're not utilizing it. And I think um, our own experience, I mean, for example, you know, let's take two different uh, parts of the Indian uh, high-tech area. One is energy and the other is space. Now, interestingly, because of the security type restrictions on atomic energy, we had a lot of these restrictions imposed on us from Because until the nuclear deal, you know, we were not cleared for a whole lot of things. The entire thing was sort of controlled within the government, trying to develop it within the government, make progress, really moving as rapidly. The space program, on the other hand, has been a very different kind of and, you know, it's, it's brought in a lot of the Indian private sector, making different components. Uh, and on the whole, it's done a better job because it's produced a, a very competitive space program at the lower end of the spectrum. I mean, we're today launching uh, satellites from a whole, by a whole range of countries, including So, you know, how, I mean, I go back to the question of institutions. Uh, both the development of technology, efficient functioning of markets, uh, and of course, when you get into the financial, having a system that will encourage the flow of capital does depend on many functioning institutions, which we sort of take for granted. I mean, for example, in India, I mean, we are suddenly beginning to realize 
that is totally unacceptable that a commercial dispute through the courts could take 15 years to resolve. I mean, that's just ridiculous. So quite frankly, if the Indian government were to do nothing else than to say, listen, this has got to be cut down to five years. I'm not saying two, I'm saying five. It, would be a, it wouldn't be controversial. The, the only vested interest that might oppose it are high-paid lawyers because they benefit from this ridiculous prolonged delays and everything. You know, many of these things can be done, and I think the good commissions work on institutions. I think Mike brought in Achimoglu to write a paper. He's done a lot of the work in this area. So, Mike, the answer is you need a second growth commission. You want to lead a second growth. You're probably doing that already because of this work that you're doing on INET. But I think you better you better come out with the the New York consensus or maybe the Milan consensus since you're living there. Uh, it will be less controversial. I do think, by the way, the country experience is very... Uh, the biggest damage that the international institutions do is they, they create a, a uniform brand. Actually, you want to create a uniform brand. Whereas, to my mind, it would be much better if they were to say, you know, I don't really know what makes an economy tick. But here are 20 cases of it having tick. And maybe you should see what are, which of these things you could do reasonably seamlessly at home. Yeah. Yeah, no, I agree with that completely. When it, Rob, I was just thinking, you know, we're 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 trying, you know, in this global economic transformation to you know pay attention at least to Africa, as you know, um, it, because because it would be so easy to sort of skate by as we think about you know mega issues like climate change and you know political and social polarization and. Um, and the you know building economies on digital foundations and so on, but I think Montek's right. You know, at some point down the road, you know, some thought of people, mainly drawn from leadership roles in a wide range of countries, you know, could be assembled to look at the world from the point of view of you know, well, how does it look when you're still in the in the development phase, which is what we were doing, and I think that's slightly different then it's not inconsistent with, but it's slightly different than the mandate of the the commission that you created and that Joe and I co-chair. I think, you know, uh, if you, one of the interesting things is that maybe way back in the early 2000s, there was a kind of assumption that uh, progress towards global governance is going to come within the established international Institutions that deal with global government. That I'm afraid is completely gone. I don't think these institutions have distinguished themselves as leaders of ideas. They did not actually spot any of the problems that actually arose. And right now, all that's happening is they're, they're rehashing the usual sort of discourses. But yet, the global economy is trying to come to grips with some of these very, very difficult things. I mean, the most difficult of this climate change. It, it includes all the reasons for market failure, uh, including externalities, absence of institutions, lack of trust, and an incredibly long time frame for action. 
with a backward-looking time frame for paying for past misuse. I mean, just impossible. Somehow, hopefully, these guys are going to get uh, to, a, to a kind of a consensus also. You know, the G20 in, invented a very interesting phrase. Uh, it used to keep talking about coordination. I mean, coordination kind of implies that you're going to do this and I'm going to do that. And it soon became clear that although there was a lot of agreement on how to develop, there was absolutely no willingness to coordinate. So I think they invented the word concerted action. It sort of means, well, you know, we're kind of broadly moving in the same direction, but we're not coordinating. I'm not doing this because you're going to do that. But this is what we're both going to do, and I think it's pretty good. Although maybe I should do more, and you should do more too. You know, I think climate change is going to be exactly like that. Because, you know, 10 years ago, the developing countries view, which is actually, from a moral point of view, not without me, that since the developing countries are developed countries during their development of most of the available space, bringing carbon dioxide into the atmosphere, they shouldn't really be asking developing countries to do very much. I mean, that really evident that that wasn't going to work when China became the biggest emitter. Not the biggest per capita, but the biggest emitter. India is now the third largest emitter. Well, again, not the third largest in per capita. Capita will be very low, but we're quite large. And I think in Paris, all the developing countries finally agreed that they were going to do something. It wasn't part of a negotiation. It didn't establish that I'm going to do this because you're going to do this. It just morally felt that you didn't want to be accused that you're not doing anything. So they agreed to something. I don't know what they're going to do in the COP26, which meets in November in Glasgow. When they're supposed to look at what's happened and then decide what more can we do. And it'll be very interesting to see what comes. One other example, and then I'll stop, which is actually very interesting, is the US proposal, which Yellen has put together, uh, on taxation. I mean, on a minimum global tax, so that, you know, deal with the problem of countries that pay too low rates of taxation. I'm not sure how that, how that would be implemented. That's not been made very clear. And also, I think the, the notion, U.S. notion is that we can introduce this plus. We can introduce some kind of a right to be able to tax profit uh, as a proportion uh, or in proportion to the sales of these large corporations. Uh, in different regions. Of course, the, the Europeans want that to be restricted to the top six or seven, which would only be American. Americans say, how about the top 2,000? We're quite happy with the top 2,000. You know, but these are not being discussed in the UN. They're not being discussed in the G20. They're really being discussed in the OECD. I think some kind of collaborative thinking is going on. And happens on this tax front is absolutely because you know in individual countries if whoever's running our tax department if we told that look this is now a global consensus when our finance minister was abroad 
we should be able to say, listen, what we are doing is in line with the global consent. We always have little differences. Nobody can then be accused of saying, you know, you're doing something completely weird that you've never heard of. Now, getting this done is an extremely important thing in practice for global business. There are lots of uncertainty, there are lots of unknown uh, uh, loose ends that haven't been tied up in the American approach. How to get that done is a, is a real issue. One of the, well, one of the big challenges is going to, you know, if that's going to work, then there has to be a way to detect subsidies that sort of undo the agreement on taxes. And that's a really hard problem. I mean, right? I mean, yeah. and it's a special, I mean, just, you, you know, well, we've been through this with the U.S.-China tensions, you know, and the state-owned enterprises and stuff. So it's, yes, that, that's the, that is the... the, the, the the accusation against China, which I think not only the U.S. but also the Europe makes, and quite frankly, so do our producers, uh, maybe they're just riding on the global consensus, is that China's fair trader because it underwrites a whole lot of uh, losses by giving non-transparency. That's clearly a critical issue, and we need to have some agreement you know, to, to handle that, you've got to strengthen the WTO. Uh, and I mean, that raises the issue whether the new U.S. administration would willing to take the step necessary to revive the WTO's appellate process. And today, the WTO is a free-for-all because they can, they can find whatever they want against you. And you have a right to appeal. And since the appellate process is dead, You'll never be violating the WTO. You can always say, well, you know, I want to follow the WTO, but there isn't an appeals process. Now, the Americans say that the appeals process did work too well. They probably have a point there. But, you know, that seems to be something that the countries should be able to get and agree on. And here again is a related issue. I don't think that the WTO's uh, consensus rule makes any sense. I mean, the present position in the WTO is that three small countries put up an agreement by simply not agreeing. Now, knowing that all large countries can get small countries to do what they want, I mean, this is simply not feasible. Why can't we have a system that says that, look, uh, first of all, the countries should not have just one vote. Countries should have uh, a vote in proportion to their share in world trade. And why can't we have a system that says an 80% vote or even an 85% vote so that no one country gets the veto? Uh, I should emphasize, by the way, India has never supported uh, not when I was in government, and I don't think the present government also. But there's a mechanical approach where we sanctify. I mean, developing countries have always sanctified the U.S. as the only truly democratic global body. But you know, the other side of that point is that it's the only global body that doesn't mean anything. I mean, the effective UN instrument is the Security Council, which doesn't rely on one man. What's worse is it also has a veto. And that's why it's been effective. But that needs to be reformed in my view. You have to say one man, one vote, uh, I mean, that just doesn't make any sense. I mean, you, 
you cannot have a situation where if countries with, let's say, 85% of world trade agree that these are going to be the rules, that a few countries can hold it up. And if you don't like 85%, make it 90%. I agree. Completely. Yep. Let, let me uh, ask you both. You should take a Mike, vote in INET, by the way. Uh, Rob, take a vote on this proposal. My prediction is, since you are an institution reputed to be pro-developing country and pro-liberal, this proposal would be shot down as being okay. uh, plutocratic and undemocratic. At the same time, I think we should, uh, you know, let's try it out. What? What do you think? We I should put this before, the, let's put this before the Young Scholars Initiative and see how they, uh, yeah, exactly. and about 15,000 I mean, of them. You know, since I'm just with friends here, I would really like, and it's quite possible that I'm completely wrong. I'm certainly out of touch. I would really like to know what uh, the young scholars say about this proposal. Okay. We will uh, bring that up. As a matter of fact, I might invite you to be the person who presents the proposal no, 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 in that, a session that with them. <laughs> put it this way. I've said what I have to say. If you can't find a single guy in INET to elaborate the proposal, then the proposal is dead in the water. I'm quite happy to listen. I'm quite happy to listen to such a okay. debate, and I persuade Mike also to join in. Then we can comment on it at the end, if you like. Okay, good. Well, Mike, I want to. I want to. You and I have talked about some of these issues related to the notion of trust in governance and expertise. It's very hard right now to believe that an excellent proposal can actually become enacted given the way in which voting in democracy and other things are functioning. Uh, uh, so I think, I think the, uh, one of the questions is for all of us is how do we repair trust and faith in expertise and governance and rely on senior experienced people like Montek to lead when what you might call the fake news generators can sow the seeds of distrust at very low cost and have a very large footprint. Well, there's a, there's a, I think this is one of the central questions of our time, but, um, and Montek and I, you know, have talked about this as well. I mean, you know, the perspective is that we, we live for a lot of our adult lives in a world, you know, in democracies, the called representative democracies, you know, we sort of delegated, you know, willingly through what we thought were effective institutions, decisions to people who actually knew what they were talking about and knew what they were doing. And that's sort of, you know, like the tide going out and we don't live in that world anymore. I mean, I think that, you know, the easy part of this is that the that I think the way we have governed ourselves has left people behind uh, with major lapses of inclusiveness, uh, which you can attribute to self-interested behavior or failures of values, but they're, but they're understandable and they're fixable. Um, that doesn't mean it's easy to fix, but I mean, I think we earned some of this polarization by 
by losing track of the distributional aspects of the growth patterns in many places. And, um, and we're going to, you know, just have to get it back by paying attention. And I think that's, you know, a fairly complete description of a fairly large fraction of the Biden administration's intentions, right? I mean, they're basically going to ignore the political noise and try to build, you know, a set of programs that are designed for kind of maximum inclusiveness, you know, and and to some extent sweep away some of the identity politics, which is understandable but divisive um, in the American context. I think the hard part, the one that we don't know how to address, is we know that these social media that Montek mentioned before are pretty powerful tools, you know, for the pursuit of things that lead in the, the opposite direction from what we're talking about. And it's not clear we can get this job done if we allow everybody to use those tools to the maximum extent possible. And the reason that's difficult for us is that we don't want to believe that we need to control things like free speech to some extent in order to prevent divisive, very bad political and social outcomes. But, my, you know, my, my honest, I'm uh, not in the frame of mind to think that I ought to make up my mind at this point. But I think if we go at this rejecting the notion that we need mechanisms and institutions that exercise some degree of control <clears throat> over these things, look, they're part of the educational system, right? We have institutions and mechanisms that, you know, make decisions about the content of the educational system and the way it's run. You know, it's not unthinkable that we may need institutions that, that do this too. So that's enough for me. But I think that's going to be, at least for a lot of places, you know, a lot of democracies, that's going to be the hard part. Yeah. The, uh, our friend and fellow Global Commission member, Ro Hinton Medora, the head of the Center for International Governance Innovation in, the, in Ontario, has presented, I was at a Pontifical Academy of Social Science meeting in front of Pope Francis, where Rohinton presented the need for an analog to the Food and Drug Administration so that technology can be experimented with, go into phase two, phase three, but we have to understand the adverse side effects before it's unleashed. And uh, I, I think there's there are people, obviously, uh, very concerned about how the, what you might call rent-sinking games would take place, uh, where people protecting their own property rights are fomenting fear about new technologies. But nonetheless, I think this notion of a process of understanding how these things affect society and having some discretion or judgment uh, about approval or not might be a healthy a healthy dimension of the next phase. Yeah. I mean, let me color commentary. But in America, a few years ago, our Supreme Court gave, you know, corporations and money a huge voice in politics, you know, to the pursue version, I, I assume, what they perceive as their self-interest, which is <coughs> so if we now go along and say to the people who don't have the money and so on, that we're going to take away their powerful tools, you know, to be rabble rousers and populists and object to this, it's not going to be a huge hit, uh, I don't think. 
So digging ourselves out of this hole is going to take a big shovel. Yeah, they, they, uh, it is true that two wrongs don't make a right, but uh, I think you're right that both sides of that ledger have to be corrected to bring things back into balance. And uh, Montec in India, do you have similar uh, concerns? In America, we've the role of money in politics is quite overpowering. Uh, oh, yeah. Similar no, no. concerns? We've, we've had that concern for many, many years. <clears throat> I mean, it's been, there's almost no thoughtful book uh, on India uh, which hasn't worried about uh, the direct link between money power, influencing government, generating corruption. That's a uh, that's been uh, very much there. I mean, the real real issue is uh, are we how do we how do we counter? Uh, and are there institutional changes taking place, which will make it easier to counter, uh, or make it more difficult? That's really what you need to look at. And uh, you know, I I mean, <clears throat> the whole issue of hate speech. I think there was some. Article in the Atlantic or something, which had a very interesting uh, basic point, which said that they've done some research that you know negative news in social media goes viral ten times faster than any positive news. So the truth of the matter is that uh, it looks good that it should be a free for all and everybody should be able to say whatever they can say. That's freedom of speech. But unfortunately, uh, and, and this goes to what people in America are worrying about. I think Amy Chua's book on political rights. If the system somehow falls into a, a position where it becomes easy to identify certain ethnic groups or other groups, whatever you like, uh, which become the... Uh, the object of a hate campaign. That can generate a huge amount of uh, sort of popularity. And this is true in different countries. The question is, how do you counter? As I think Mike was saying, I'm not very clear that we can do that by control. I mean, if you start doing it by control, any number of people uh, could say, for example, that a uh, uh, criticism of capitalism, hate speech against the top capitalists in the country but to be controlled. I don't know how you would do that, quite frankly. And this is really where it, you, you need a robust set of institutions which would prevent the misuse of these, these types of uh, uh, methods of communication. What they, what they are, well, I, I'm sure they'll develop, but I think they're going to take time. It's not going to be done by somebody sitting around in a committee and saying, this is a serious problem, let's solve it this way. I think somehow the, the culture, the system has to throw up uh, its own solution. And I'm kind of optimist, I mean, I think it will. Uh, but you know, I'm also getting on in years, so I wonder if it'll do that. I'm there to see it, but this is just one of those long-term things that will happen. I think it's a big change from the past. You know, way back in, I think the early 20th or late 19th century, 
you know, this that there's a commonality in the elite. The governments can change. Guys running the government don't change. I think I forget the phrase was whether it's the Tories or the Liberals, the Whigs are always something like that. Now that's comforting if you're quite happy with the society. Because the democracy becomes a sort of a nice plaything. I mean, yes, you can have your own government now, but it's the same guys who are going to be running the show, so we can all sleep peacefully. And if you're not trying to bring about radical change, that's good. But you know, if you are trying to bring about radical change, that's not good. So I think the, the solution has to be that the country's ability to bring about changes must be consistent with its ability to tolerate constraints. And uh, you need institutions that would bring these two, bring the ambition for change in line with the ability to change and to generate a consensus. This happened in the past. But right now, I think globally, we're going through a period when the political leadership over the world doesn't seem to be capable uh, of doing that. Your thoughts, Mike? I defer to Montek on this. I mean, I, you know, what I learned from Montek, you know, economists tend to sort of say, this is what we need to do. To, uh, and, it, and, and I was constantly learning from Montek that there are issues about how to get it done, right? What institutions, what order do you do things? How do you make sure people are on board? Um, and, and, and that's why the Growth Commission spent a fair amount of time on institutions and leadership and the role of leadership and so on, um, which, you know, which I was quite proud of, even though it was mainly the work of the people who had the experience leading. Um, so I, I'm, I'm like Montek, I'm kind of an optimist, but this, it's, it's more fun to be an optimist when you can see the outline of the solution <laughs> that you're Toward. And, and, um, light at if, the end of the tunnel, yeah. In this case, you know, it may be long enough term that I don't, I'm not absolutely confident that I'll get to see the solution implemented. Mm -hmm. Well, Montek, I, I did a paper, I grew up in Detroit, Michigan, and we did a course, or excuse me, a conference on the questions of race and inequality and what we call otherness. And uh, Arjun Jayadev and I co-wrote a paper where he did a lot of empirical work, which showed that the places where geographically there was economic despair was also associated with the places where the diseases of despair that Angus Deaton and others uh, have cited and in those places, the, the uh, which, by the way, were also places in 2016 where Donald Trump did very well. But the other piece was that the variations in economic despair went up and down in lockstep with variations in racial animosity and racial episodes. So at some level, what and Peter Timmon in his book on the vanishing middle class wrote about this, we had a very ugly dynamic, which was 
when the, let's say, I don't know where the circle uh, begins and ends, but when you start with economic despair, it foments racial animosity, racial divide, non-cohesive public policy, uh, lots of polarization in the structure of the education system, and people are not, uh, how do I say, a vast majority of the population are voting to do things to poison the institutions that would help them emerge in a knowledge-intensive economy. And this was a very, very uh, dysfunctional study of the dynamics of the interaction between economy and despair and hostility and what you might call misdirection of what the causes were of the underlying despair and then refractory and damaged public policy being the result. And I, I think that is, is quite haunting uh, because at some place we have to arrest the underlying fear so people aren't so receptive to the hostile, the negative, the hate information. No, that's, that's absolutely correct. I agree. There's a lot of examples of that, you know, where you get in a dysfunctional spiral, reinforcing the wrong way. And the, the, I think some of the biggest challenges that uh, the leaders in various countries face is, you know, fi figuring, creatively figuring out how to break into the spiral and stop it from mm -hmm. running. Mm -hmm. I mean, Franklin Roosevelt in the United States, at least regarding the Caucasian community, was given a lot of uh, credit for stepping into that spiral and, and creating a positive result. And obviously the Biden administration stands in that, uh, amidst that challenge in the United States right now. But I think it's, I think this is a pervasive set of challenges that the two of you have been illuminating today. And uh, how I, uh, I, I don't know why a young, talented person would want to run for office right now. <laughs> the, <laughs> the challenge is so daunting, and the light is not at the end of the tunnel, as you mentioned earlier. Uh, I think it's a very, very difficult time. But, but at the same time, we should all be hoping that for some irrational reason, they do. I mean, I agree. A, a good I agree. example we got to rise of, to the of challenge. negative spiral that Mike talked about Precisely if these developments lead to sensible people sort of say the hell with politics, my thing. It could be that. Yeah. At, at INET, the draft of our last strategic plan was called Filling the Void. <laughs> and uh, trying to rise to this occasion is a formidable challenge. Well, I want to thank the two of you for getting together today and exploring. I think this was a how would I say, daunting, but illuminating session. And it sits on the, how would I say, on the shoulders of your stimulating book that I encourage everybody to read. Backstage in India is a, which you might call, behind the curtain, it is a place to have observed many lessons for tomorrow. And 
by creating that book, you've shared uh, an extraordinary document, an extraordinary vantage point and experience with all of us. So thank you both. And hopefully we can get together again before too long. And uh, perhaps when the skies are a little sunnier. <laughs> thank you very much, Rob. Thanks. Great seeing you again, Mike. Thank you. All the best. Thank you. Good. Great to see you, Montek. And thank Good you, Rob. Good to see you, too. Pleasure. Okay. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. And check out more from the Institute for New Economic Thinking at ineteconomics.org. And I'll tell it and speak it and think it and breathe it And reflect from the mountains so all souls can see it And I'll stand on the ocean until I start sinking But I'll know my song well before I start singing